0: Voltaire, the French philosopher, once said in a letter to a friend, he said, when it comes to money, everybody is of the same religion. Obviously, what he meant by this, that all have the tendency to make money to be our God instead of God being our God. It's the same sentiment that is echoed by Job in Job chapter 12, verse 6. Job was saying that evil people provoke God with their sin. And he said the way they do this is by bringing their God in their hands. And the God that they bring in their hands he's talking about is their money. Atlas Shrugged novelist Ayn Rand relates a conversation between two people. One person twists a scripture and tortures the Scripture by saying to the other, you know, money is the root of all evil. And the other responded, money is made possible only by the men who produce. Is that what you call evil? The very discussion shows how people can be divided on their views of money. But the fact remains that the Bible never, never, never said that money is the root of all evil. The Bible is very clear that it is the very love of money that is the root of all evil. Another way of putting it is that when money becomes a god, then that person who is worshiping money is opening himself or herself to all sorts of evil. Money itself is not evil, nor it is the root of all evil in the world. Money itself is morally neutral. We can use money for good and noble causes, or we can use it for evil causes. So, money is neutral. In fact, one of the surest ways of telling of a person's character is to know how that person makes use of his money and material possessions. In fact, there was a a man back in the 50s by the name of Godfrey Davis. And Godfrey Davis was going about to write a biography of the great Duke of Wellington. But when Davis came across an account ledger of the Duke, where he spent his money and how he spent his possessions, here's what he said. He said, it was a far better clue to what he thought was really important in his life than reading all of his letters and all of his speeches. No wonder Jesus spoke more about the use of material possessions and money than he spoke about heaven and hell combined. In Matthew 6:24, Jesus actually contrasts money with God. He asked, "'Who is your master?' Who is your master, God or money? In other words, who possesses me, God or my possessions? Do I possess my possessions and I use them as servants and as slaves to serve the purpose of God in my life, or do they possess me and enslave me? That's the question. And as we come to this section In the series from Nehemiah on the rebuilding of broken walls, it's not going to be a surprise to you to see how fallen nature is raising its ugly head. I hope you already turned with me. Nehemiah chapter 5. There are basically two groups of people, both possessed with love for money. There were the haves, and there were the have-nots, And have not paid for what they have. (laughs) The first group is in verses 1 to 5. you find that group of people who did not have money were equally enslaved to money. They were spending money they did not have. And they found themselves in financial bondage. They were living beyond their means. And they were actually enslaved their children. The second group of people in verses 6 all the way to 13, these are the haves, people who had money, and they were equally enslaved to money. They used their money to exploit their fellow Jews. They were using their money to enslave their fellow countrymen. And here's the amazing thing the amazing thing of how Nehemiah dealt with both groups of people with absolute supernatural wisdom from above. In a very short chapter, Nehemiah begins to teach everyone who truly loves God, whether he lived in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the absolute brilliant principles of money management. He brought both groups into turning to the living God and repent of their sin regard to money. Here, the debtors repented of their getting into debt, and the lenders repented of exploiting and placing their fellow Jews in such a bondage. It's a remarkable spiritual experience. The Spirit of God began to work in both groups and how they both turned to the Lord. Here, Nehemiah actually gives us some of the most profound principle regarding management of our finances. And those three principles are found in verses 14 to 19 in Nehemiah 5. The first principle, keep your eyes on your giver. The second principle, imitate your giver. And the third principle, you can never, never, never outgive your giver. This is one of the most important money management principles that you can learn. If we view your employer, if you view your boss, if you view your company, if you view even family members as your givers, or if you view anybody else as your giver, you are in a world of hurt. That's the beginning of trouble. (laughs) Because that really, if you want to learn money management, you've got to begin there. Because sooner or later, those folks are going to disappoint you big time. But if you focus on your giver, you will never be disappointed. For this lesson, Nehemiah uses the best method of teaching. Do you know the best method of teaching? Is personal example. Do what I do. Not do what I say, do what I do. And that's exactly what Nehemiah is doing here. He is using his personal example of his life to show his people, that the most important and the primary principle in financial management is to keep your eye on your giver, the real giver. He was totally focused on his giver. Look at verses 14 and 15. And he did not just do this on a temporary basis because he needed something from God. He did this for 12 years. (laughs) 12 years. But I want to remind you that Nehemiah was a celebrity in his day. He really was. I mean, Nehemiah was a mover and a shaker of his day. He wasn't just a nobody. Nehemiah had considerable influence on the emperor or the king of Persia, which is the most powerful man in the world at that time. And Nehemiah was a rock star. (laughs) I mean, really, in our lingo today. Above all, Nehemiah was in the place where he could have used his power and his considerable influence over the king and the emperor to feather his nest and really make a ton of money. He could have made a killing in the real estate market, but he didn't. There's nothing wrong with making money, but Nehemiah didn't. Why? Why didn't he? Why did he forego such a lucrative opportunity to get all you can and can all you get and then sit in the lid? Why? Ah, because his focus was on his giver. That was his focus. Tucked away in the end of verse 15 of Nehemiah 5, tucked away there, he tells you why. Here it is, second half of 15, the last part of verse 15. Out of reverence for God, I did not act like this. All the others were, man, they were exploiting people. He said, I didn't do this out of reverence for God. What does that mean? What does that mean? This person makes money, has no reverence for God? No, 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 no. Listen carefully. He had such intense reverence for God. He had such intense confidence in God. He had such an intense obedience To God, he had such a focus on God as his giver that he would not trade his calling for all the wealth in the world. Don't forget that Nehemiah was appointed a governor by the most powerful man in the world, the king of Persia. He had every right to exploit his position, and it is legal in the Persian law. He would not have been breaking any laws. And that's why I want to stop for a moment and just tell you straight here. Just because there's something that is legal, it means it's right. There are a lot of legal things that are wrong. Abortion is legal in this country, but God still views it as absolutely wrong. Fornication is legal, but God says it's a sin. Homosexuality in many places are legal, but it is not God's design for humanity. Just because something is legal doesn't mean, oh, is right? Yeah. Nehemiah's focus was on his true giver. He knew who his giver is. Nehemiah understood what Jesus taught 500 years or so later in Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be thrown in as a bonus. I know that's a rough translation, but you get the meaning. <laughs> Nehemiah was ruled by God, not by love for money. Oh, but I wanted to contrast Nehemiah with the man who was Nehemiah's boss's grandfather. <laughs> His boss, Artaxes, had a grandfather. And the grandfather, Darius, King Darius, is the Persian king who came, whipped the Babylonians, who were the most powerful people in the world, destroyed them, took over. And Babylon went to its demise while the Persian empire rose. And the guy who did this was the grandfather of this Nehemiah's boss, about 516 BC, give or take. And when King Darius came and invaded Babylon, he found the tomb of the wife of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember him? Nebuchadnezzar was the Babylonian king who came and ransacked Jerusalem, destroyed the walls that Nehemiah is trying to rebuild, took Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and many others as slaves into Babylon. They took them as captives. And so when Darius came and invaded Babylon, took it over, he saw on Nebuchadnezzar's wife's tomb the following inscription. Let me read it. If any king of Babylon after me should be in need of money, he may open this tomb and take as much as he wants, but only if he truly needs it. Darius comes in, invades Babylon, takes over. He sees this inscription in the tomb of the wife of the founder of Babylon. And he said, man, I can't get my hand on that money. He was extremely rich. He was fabulously rich. Nonetheless, greed led him to open the queen's tomb. And so, Because he was enslaved to money, he could not resist such wealth that was buried in the queen's tomb. So he immediately ordered the opening of the tomb, and he got inside of it because he wanted to get his hands on all that gold. And so, when he got inside, the interior of the tomb was empty. There was nothing there except the embalmed body of the queen. But inside the tomb, there was another inscription. And it reads something like this. If you had not been greedy for gold, you would not have thought of ransacking the graves of the departed. (laughs) Greed is a serious moral defect that enslaves its victims. And that is why Nehemiah rejected the values of the world. He did. He rejected the values of his peers. He saw what they were doing, but he rejected that. Nehemiah rejected the laying up of treasures here on earth. (laughs) Nehemiah chose to focus on his true giver. And that is why verse 16, he says, Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall, not acquiring land, so that I would sell it in the black market and become rich. What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. When I arrived in Jerusalem... I could have made a killing in the real estate market. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. But that was not his calling. But he said, I focused instead on serving the purpose of God in my life because he is the one who gives me all that I need. And God blessed him out of his socks. (laughs) I'm going to show you because that's how it works. When you focus on your true giver you'll be amazed, you'll be astounded at how free you are from the love of money. First principle of money management, focus on your… Well, the second principle of money management, and you see it right here, imitate your giver. Here's the irony, as we're going to see in the third principle of money management that it is when you become focused on giving that you will truly receive. Nehemiah, in verse 17, chapter 5, he said, On a daily basis, I personally provided food for 150 people for 12 years. (laughs) And by the way, I mean, this was not biscuits and gravy. There's nothing wrong with that. But look at the lavish way that he fed those whom he supported. But in all that generosity, he totally depended on God. Totally depended on God. Nehemiah saw himself as a conduit. Nehemiah saw himself as a channel. And you don't need to have a seminary degree to know that God is constantly looking for channels. (laughs) He wants to bless his kingdom. So he's looking for people who are going to be conduits, who are going to be channels, constantly waiting. And he'll bless you some and wait, and bless you some and then wait, and see how you're going to channel it. Or you're going to nickel and dime God to death. You know how people, nickel, dime God. Well, you know, is that 10%? Was it before taxes, after taxes? What is this? And what about this? And what about... No, 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 that's not how it works. See, Nehemiah exemplified trust. In the promise of Jesus that he made 500 years later, in Luke 6:38, give, and it shall be given to you a good measure. Press down, shake it together, running over, and they'll pour it into your lap. For by the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I believe Nehemiah was addicted to giving. And what a great addiction to have. <laughs> when Paul said in 2nd Corinthians 9, 7, that God loves a cheerful giver. God loves everybody, especially he loves his own. He loves them to the end. He loved them enough to die on the cross. So what is he saying? He's basically saying that God has a soft spot for those who are hilarious givers. Oh, yes, hilarious. They give hilariously. I hear people say, well, give, give, give until it hurts. I totally disagree with that. I totally disagree with that. I don't agree with that one bit. Giving should not hurt. I say, give until you get to be so hilarious. (laughs) Give until you can't keep from laughing in your giving. For here's the biblical truth. You will not be a hilarious giver if you allow the world's logic to fill your mind and your heart and your lifestyle. You say, what's that mean? Well, see, the world's logic says that what you have is like a pie. You slice give to God, you get less slices left over. That's how the world views it. The more you give God, the poorer you get. That's the world's logic. That's not biblical logic. God's logic is very different. God's logic sees it as a silo, not a pie, a silo. Every time you turn the spigot on and you give, from the top where you can't see, God is pouring it in. You can say, what is this? This thing is not emptying. I mean, it just keeps on being filled. See, that's God's logic. He's overflowing from the top. The world says that if you give generously, you'll become poor. But God said when you give generously, you will be richly blessed. The world says that your statement of net worth is all the things that you own in this life. God says the statement of your net worth is what you gave to God. You see, God doesn't care about how much you have. He gave you everything anyway. He cares about how much you gave. Not what you have, but what you gave. Listen, beloved. I have tested God in this area. And the only reason I did it is because the Bible said when it came to that area, he said, test me. So I took God at his word. And I tested God in the times when I did not know where my next meal is going to come from. And there were times there were no meals coming. (laughs) And I tested him in the times of abundance. And I'm here to testify to you, not only me, but hundreds of others, that God is true to His Word, that God keeps His promise, even when you have a crop failure on occasions. First principle, focus on your giver. Second principle, imitate your giver. And the third principle is you can't outgive your giver. God met every one of Nehemiah's needs, and more. I mean, he was in an abundance. God never let Nehemiah down. God is the perfect giver. God is the giver of all good gifts. In fact, the Bible said, for God so loved that he gave. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, 15, he said, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. As Paul began to reflect on the generosity of God and the self-giving of God, he says, I can't explain it. I can't describe it. I cannot express it. I can only give thanks for it. And you can't outgive the one who gave you everything. You can't, even if you try. Hear me right on this. If our greatest need was for information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need was for technology, God would have sent us an engineer. If our greatest need was for money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need is for fun, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need of all was a need to be forgiven, the need for forgiveness. So God sent His one and only Son, perfect Son, the Lord Jesus Christ is our forgiver. And He... And he said, come unto me, come unto me, who are desperate for forgiveness, and I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you. I was thinking about this, and part of Nehemiah's leadership, particularly here, leading people to repentance and be true to God's call in their life and rebuilding the walls that are crumbling all around them. And I thought of something I read some time ago. It took place back in 1971 when composer Leonard Bernstein premiered a musical theater piece called Mass, M-A-S-S, Mass, like in the Catholic Church. It was commissioned by Jacqueline Kennedy in the opening of John F. Kennedy's Center for Performing Arts in Washington, D.C. In that piece, there is a scene I think with all of us can identify. Listen carefully. A priest celebrating Mass, a Roman Catholic Mass, while he was dressed in the regalia of layer upon layer upon layer of vestments. In fact, that elegant embroidered robes were so heavy that he was struggling under its weight. These vestments represented layers of man-made rules and rituals and religious traditions. Bernstein did not know that he was actually communicating biblical truth. (laughs) And then the priest realized that these heavy layers of religiosity were destroying him and blocking his relationship with God. So finally, the priest begins to take them off, and lay them aside, one by one, one by one, until he stands before God in jeans and T-shirt. And then he approaches the altar and he says, Look at me! There is nothing but me under this. My beloved, listen to me. God sees through our facade. He really does. God sees through our self-piety and religiosity. God sees through the plastic smiles. God sees through the trappings of, of financial success and the status symbols. God sees the false religious performances. He wants us to be just who we are before Jesus because He sees us as we are, liberated from the bondage of money and material possessions. He wants to liberate us from the enslavement, to these false gods, false gods that sometimes we worship, other times we fear, other times we're anxious we're going to lose. And He's calling us to focus on our giver, to imitate our giver, and to remember that you can never, 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 never outgive your giver. But perhaps this message is premature to some here today. Because there are some who might not have made first base of knowing their giver. How can you focus on that which you do not know? And that is why the invitation is always open here that if you have never Come to Jesus Christ, receive his forgiveness, repented, and receive him as your only Savior and Lord. You can do that as we pray. And then this message will be very relevant. Shall we pray together? Father, our confidence is that you see us through and through. We cannot fake it with you. We may fake it in front of one another, but we can't with the one who searches the depths of our soul. And so, Father, I pray if there's a single person here who does not know you as Savior and Lord, Lord Jesus, this will be the day in which they give their life to you and receive you as their Savior and Lord, and turn around and receive eternal life and forgiveness. For the rest of us who have known you for many years— And yet, we bought into the world's logic. I pray that you may set us free today. Free to worship you. Free to believe you. Free to trust you. Free to obey your promises. And trust that he who promises always keeps his word. For we pray this in Jesus' name.